Man, what a great morning already. Uh, it is great to see you here. Um, I am excited to open God's word with you to Romans chapter 8. Uh, as you turn there, just a couple of things. Um, I just as every time that um, I, I I'm sit through a mission emphasis, I'm praying and asking God, is this something that I need to go, a trip I need to go on, or how, do, how can I be a part? And, and hopefully your heart is stirring in a similar way. And I would say this, just reiterating what Jeff said, um, if the Lord has stirred your heart today or a day previous to today about participating in Flint next year, I mean, even if you aren't for sure that you can go, I would encourage you to at least step into our um, greeting area and the missions team will be wearing the gray shirts as Jeff and Billy were wearing and, uh, and find out more information. Uh, ask some questions about the trip and just see if God doesn't continue stirring your heart uh, for that trip. Um, I know it's easy to hear God today about what he wants us to do today, um, and it can be challenging, challenging to hear God today about what he wants us to do six months from now, but we do believe in a God who is sovereign and who knows your future, and so he just as easily can tell you today and convict your heart today about what he wants you to do spring break, and so I want our, our ears to be open to hear that. Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to, in about 35 minutes, roll through one of my favorite chapters in, in the Bible, just to be honest with you. It's one of the, the most exciting chapters in the book of Romans, from my opinion anyway, and in the entire Bible. Uh, Paul blows up so much about who we are in Christ now and what has been accomplished on our behalf. And, uh, and so um, the title of today's sermon is Children of God. And I love how Paul takes all the theology he's been teaching in Romans and pulls it into, uh, in, into this idea of a personal relationship with God as a loving father, not just a far-off deity who we can know things about theologically, but he's also a father to us as his children. And so the idea of God being a father implies a lot. Um, from the father's perspective to us, it implies love. Right? It implies that he loves us as children. It implies that he leads us as children. It also implies, as any good father would, that he disciplines us as children. And so when we think about then our perspective as children of God, what that means about our relationship, so much is implied as well, that we would have affection towards God. God wouldn't simply be a genie in the bottle deity that we go to when we need something, but that we would truly have affections for God as a father. There would be a sense of respect from our hearts towards him, a sense of, I want to hear from you. I want to hear direction from you. I want to follow your leadership as my heavenly father. As we think about all that is implied by this relationship of God being the father, a couple of things that we'll see uh, through Romans 8 today, one, just like in our earthly relationships, God initiates the relationship. So just like an earthly father initiates the relationship with a child, I'm not just talking about making sure the child is conceived and born, but once the child is born, it's the role of the father to first say, I love you, even before the child is able to say back, I love you too. We long to hear those words. And as parents, we say that over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? Initiating that relationship, and it blesses our hearts when one day it's reciprocated and the child responds and says for the first time, I love you too. So we know that God initiates the relationship. We also know that it is God who sustains the relationship, just like in our earthly relationships. It is the Father who says to us over and over again, I love you. Over and over again, when we mess up, you're still accepted. And over and over again, you are mine. And we know as in our earthly relationships, those were very powerful phrases that sustain us in our relationship. Now, there's something about the relationship of a father and his children that I find somewhat, um, somewhat heartbreaking and at the same time a little bit even humorous. I... There's something inerrant about the relationship between a father and children that, that God has designed into fatherhood. Like, so um, you could be the most deadbeat, horrible excuse, never have grown up, immature dad in the world. And at least early on, kids, kids, your kids will look at you like you're the hero. Like you can fix anything. Like, like you're the strongest person in the universe. And, it, and it, it breaks my heart oftentimes for moms 
who are so much more intelligent, so much more loving and caring, so much more on top of their game. But you can be the worst dad in the world and still be a hero to your children, right? Now, that, as we think about how God the Father leads us, there is a sense as his children that we would bestow that upon him, that we would see him that way. We would see him as the hero. We would see him as the one we want to be like. In the same way, children often will put on, you know, daddy's clothes that are too big for them, trying to pretend and be like daddy. So this morning at, um, you know, before 6 a.m., my oldest son was up, and he was begging me to come to church with me. And I was saying, son, you're going to be so bored. Like, you, you know what I do, right? Like, you're going to be bored. No, daddy, I want to go and be with you. And, and he thinks he wants to be like me right now. He's going to grow up to be... Uh, much wiser than that one day, but right now he sees so much excitement in who I am and what I do and, and, and wants to be like me and our, and our youngest just loves to put on my shoes and he'll even do this with Hallie too and, and walk around and pretend to be like us. And so there's the, that same sense in our relationship with our Heavenly Father that, that, that we would begin to want to be like him, right? That we would want to put on his character, put on his love, put on his compassion, his mercy and his grace. Well, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to roll through some beautiful um, indicatives, some beautiful things that are, are ours in Christ, some beautiful promises of God from the Father to us, his children. Starting in verse 1, let's read the first four verses. He begins this chapter, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to Spirit. I want to point out a couple things here that will get us started today as we move through chapter 8. First thing I want to point out is this. You're going to see um, the Spirit come up a lot in this chapter. I believe seven or eight times the Spirit is, ex- is explained as doing things in us and for us. And one thing I want to point out really clearly here at the beginning, starting in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit of God, of life. So the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for God has done. You see how all of a sudden Paul switches from, from Spirit to God there? Meaning this, that everything that the Spirit does, the Father does. Okay, So everything that God is promising here, the Spirit's going to do in us and for us. What he's saying is, is, we'll see, is that these are the things that the Father is also doing. And so as we walk through and we see these beautiful promises from God explaining how the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf and how the Holy Spirit secures us, what we're hearing is is an explanation of how God as a loving Father does these things for us. So I love that phrase in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God, your heavenly Father, God the Father has done these things on our behalf behalf. The first thing I want to point out is this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, going back to the idea of an earthly father, there's another trait that you oftentimes see in children that is inerrant. It seems to be even just designed by God into the heart of a child to want to not just be like dad, but to want to earn his favor and to please him. I know many of us um, you know, many, many of you have had fantastic earthly examples. And so as your dad set up expectations, you were able to work at those expectations. And when those expectations were met, your father praised you. He pulled you in tie. He said things to you like, son, daughter, I'm proud of you. I love you. You, you, you did it. You, you met daddy's expectations. However, others of us, Grew up in different examples. Dad either wasn't around or dad was overbearing. Dad abused his position of influence in our lives. Dad was a deadbeat dad. Dad was there present physically but gone and absent emotionally uh, and mentally. 
And, and, and I could go on and on of the other examples in the room. And so dad became this, pleasing dad became this goal that wasn't attainable. And so dad became a person to be avoided. Dad became a person to not make angry. And so rather than a loving father whose, whose favor could be earned, dad became some tyrant authoritative, abusive figure in the home to be avoided. And I love how God begins this phrase, or begins this chapter by saying, listen to me, my children. You need to hear this. There is now no condemnation for any one of you who is in Christ Jesus. Now, one reason I want to point that out is because I think if we're not careful so much about what we experience in our earthly relationship with our earthly father will transcend then into how we relate with God the Father. And I see this over and over again, counseling and discipleship relationships where as believers we're still trying to earn the favor of a father whose favor can't be earned. And God would say to us, you need to understand something. Through me sending my son to the earth to down the cross on your behalf, he earned the favor that you couldn't earn and now it's yours. And God the Father says to you, you are accepted, you are loved, you are mine. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And if you see me that way, you see me wrong. Now as we move forward, I want to point out, again, one more thing here about what we see in these first few verses towards the end of three. So this is what God did. He did what the law couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So what we see on the cross looks like condemnation, doesn't it? Matter of fact, from the cross, Jesus says, my father, why have you forsaken me? which we, all, we obviously now look back at the Psalms and understand what he was doing was reciting a biblical truth from Psalm 22 that begins with condemnation and suffering and ends in victory as he, as he stepped into the death on our behalf, our Savior bore our condemnation. So for those who are in Christ who feel like it's just too good to be true that God could forgive me, it's just too good that he could let all that go, you're right, he didn't let it go. He placed it on his son at the cross. So all the condemnation that we had earned, right, just honestly, all of God's anger and frustration, right, towards us, he placed on his son Jesus at the cross so that through what Jesus did, he could say now to us, there's no more condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. God did what the law could not do by sending his son in our likeness. He looked like us. He wore our flesh. And when his flesh was nailed to the cross, he was condemned on our behalf. If you're taking notes, God the Father has set me free from the condemnation of my sin. Or you, in parentheses it says disobedience to God. That's what sin is. But if we think about this as a relationship with, a, with our heavenly father... God has set you free from the condemnation of disobeying him as a dad. He set you free from that. While you may have a different experience here on earth, a dad who can never be appeased, a dad whose condemnation many of you still today feel when you're around him or in his presence or when you hear his voice or when, you just, when I just mention the word father, that condemnation you feel, God says to us who are in Christ, I have no condemnation for you. You're mine, you are loved, and you're accepted. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse five. For those who live according to the flesh, key phrase here, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the, light, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, do we stop right there? That's how most of us feel. But look at verse 9. You, however, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, the key to understanding what I believe Paul just said here is the word in Greek that gets translated into the phrase, set their minds. It's one word, okay? And it literally means to have a mindset or a worldview towards something. It's a, it's a form of wisdom or a, um, a, 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 a set of thoughts towards something, okay? And so to set your mind on the flesh is to live, to think truly according to the way that the flesh thinks. Well, how does the flesh think? Flesh thinks if, if I eat this, it'll make me feel better, right? If I touch this, it'll make me feel good. If I do this... It'll make me happy, right? We could go on and on. The lies of the flesh. The flesh lies to us constantly about what will truly, in the end, bring us joy, right? If you attain this, if you earn this, if you acquire this, this position, this possession, this relationship, right? Many, many single men who are Christians bought into lies. As soon as I have a wife... Right? Life will just be awesome. And then we get a wife and we think, did I pick the wrong one? Because it's not awesome anymore. It's just still struggle here in so many ways. If we're not careful, even as Christians, we, we have our minds set on the things of the flesh. And we're living according to the way the, the flesh speaks to us. But the wisdom of God is completely different from the flesh, isn't it? Right? I mean, how many things did Jesus say that don't sound like wisdom from the flesh? Or wisdom of the flesh. Just an example. Um, in Luke 9, he tells his disciples, guys, I'm getting ready to die. And anybody who's going to come after me needs to be ready to pick up his own cross and deny himself daily. Well, my flesh doesn't like that verse. Right? My flesh hears that and thinks, like, pick up your cross. You mean put on the necklace? No, no, no. What he's talking about is truly that there would be hardship and suffering for those who follow him. But then he goes on to say this in verse 24, For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? You see how different the wisdom of God is from the wisdom of man? Wisdom of man says, that doesn't make sense. Right? In order to save my life, I need to preserve it. I need to work for me. I need to build up my kingdom. I mean, if I have any left, I'll help somebody. But I come first. God says, no, you don't come first. Matter of fact, you'll find a, a beautiful, sustainable joy in losing your life for my sake. See, two different mindsets. And so what God the Father is saying, those who are my children, right, have their mindset like me. They're living according to my wisdom, living according to the Spirit, in, in comparison to living according to the flesh. They have their mindset now, think about that. Um, so, um, I see this portrayed even in, in my, own, my own boys where my wisdom begins to come their wisdom. And so whatever I think is true about any given thing that I have no idea about, they ask me these questions like, I know how the universe works. Dad, so how does such and such and such and such happen? And, and I don't want to let them down, so I make up an answer. But then I'll find that they'll repeat that answer to other people as though it's like, Absolutely true. My wisdom quickly becomes their wisdom. What I say, they repeat, is true. Now, that's the idea here of this mindset of God, that we would begin to want to think like Dad. We would want to begin to see the world like Dad sees the world. Right? Because ultimately what we're finding is that when we follow our own wisdom, it leads to death. However, as crazy as his wisdom sounds, when we follow it, it leads to life. The word in this passage is peace. God the Father, if you're taking notes, leads me towards a life of peace. No, nobody doesn't want peace, right? Or at least the, the, a version of peace in our minds. And oftentimes we see God the Father as an arbitrary, um, authoritative disciplinarian, right? Who's just always just telling us stuff to, to burden our lives and to kill our joy. And, and God says, that's not who I am. I do lead you, right? But I'm leading you away from death towards peace, right? Away from destruction towards a real sense of joy. And listen, it's not going to make sense to you always. Sometimes you're just going to have to trust my wisdom. That's what it means to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. To follow the Holy Spirit's prompting and lead in your life, even when it doesn't make sense to the flesh. 
God the Father leads me towards a life of peace. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, look at this, are sons of God. Ladies, you're you're implied there as well. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I want to point out a couple of things here. First thing I want to look at is that we have not uh, received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, that's last week's sermon. We talked about how we once were in slavery to and bondage to our own sin. But through our faith in Christ, God has unshackled us and set us free from, from that control over our lives and also from the condemnation that comes with it. He set us free from that. But he brings up something here about fear. I just want to take a moment to explain the heart of who God is from the Bible's perspective because we also know that God is a God to be feared, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so what we learn from the Bible are really two different versions of fear. Fear is not always negative, okay? So there is a sense of fear that's closely connected to shame and embarrassment and a sense of, um, of being exposed Um, But there's another type of fear. So that's what I call intimidating fear. I'm intimidated by this. It brings about a sense of I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm scared. It makes me nervous. I don't want to be around it. But there's another type of fear that I call an adorning fear. Adorning fear. And this is when we tremble, when we experience the presence of true majesty and goodness. That's a good kind of fear. So one is a fear from, right, Fear of heights, a fear of whatever it might be, large crowds. Um, You might even have an unhealthy fear of God because you don't see him the right way. You still see him through a lens of condemnation. So there's this unhealthy sense of fear. It it causes us to shrink back. It keeps us from moving forward, right? An intimidating fear. But there's an adorning fear. The fear that Proverbs and Psalms speaks of is the beginning of wisdom, It's the understanding of being in the presence of someone who is truly majestic. This is where we get our sense of awe from. Now think about that as God as our Father. How does that work out here for us? This is the way I think of it. Um, I'll just share with you an experience first that that happened uh, last week with Hudson's baseball team. Um, so uh, when you play baseball and, and you're a dad with the baseball team, there's just something kind of cool usually when you get to be one of the coaches, right? And so your son tends to walk around with a little more stride and a little more of like, I know what's going on and helps all the other kids whose dads aren't coaches know what's going on, yeah? And so we had an experience in the dugout uh, at our first game. Uh, it was just really, uh, it was, it was really a cool moment and it was very helpful for me in understanding some things about my own uh, place as a hero in my son's life. So um, there were two dads in the dugout and one of the dads um, leads a lot more than I do. So his kiddo tends to, you know, know a little bit more than the other kiddos. And, uh, and so um, you know, his dad's kind of taking charge of the dugout and giving instructions, and then his son is repeating all these instructions, just a little mini-me version, and going through the routine. You, you see it happen. I guess he just wants to be like dad. But then something else happens. So I noticed that not all the dads were present there at the game, and, and you take note of that. And you think, well, I wonder where he is. Maybe he's working, or maybe he's not in the picture. You just don't know. Well, about that time, um, this fighter jet flies over the little baseball field we're on, over there in Alita, just really low, out of formation, just roaring through where we were. It, catch, it shuts the game down for just a second. And a mom uh, speaks through the fence of the dugout to one of the little boys and says to the little boy, hey, there's daddy. And so, of course, we're like, what do you mean that's daddy? Well, what had happened is this little boy's daddy, he flies fighter jets. And his dad couldn't be at the game because he was... Uh, he was right. He was scheduled to be on a flight, and so he had broke formation and told the wife, "I'm going to fly over the field." 
What a cool experience, right? But here's what happened next. It was, just, it was really, really funny. So the child of the dad who was in charge of the dugout, who had been so proud, right, to have all this knowledge, he looks at his dad and he goes, Dad, where's your jet? <laughs> just put everything in perspective, right? And so here's how I think of God as a loving father, worthy of awe and respect and adoration from us. Like, you understand, God is the sovereign king of the universe. Like, he doesn't even have to breathe to make the universe rumble like that little baseball field rumbled. He's king, sovereign authority. And he's also our dad. Our heavenly father is the king of the universe. And truly, the only one to be worthy of the position of hero in our lives, truly a sense of hero, right? Because the best examples we have here on earth as dads, we're still gonna find mistakes there. But we have a heavenly father who says, I'm not like that. When I show up, the universe rumbles. And with that same power that I can shake the universe, I love you. And with that same authority, I say to you, you're accepted and you're mine. And as he looks down at us, little kiddos in the dugout, I'm your dad. And so we almost need to look at our earthly fathers with, right? Dad, where's your jet, right? Dad, where's your universe? And this is how our heavenly father wants us to see him. Look at what he says. So we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into intimidating fear, but instead you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Understanding how uh, this word is used, uh, culturally speaking, just like in our culture today, is a very permanent thing to be adopted. A natural child you can put up for adoption, but an adopted child is chosen Right, A permanent, binding, legal relationship. God comes to us who didn't start off as his children. Right, I mean, even those of us who grew up in church didn't start off as his children. He comes to us and he says what? I want to adopt you. I want to choose you. I want you to be mine. He initiates that relationship with us. Some of you, when you were six years old, maybe in a little country church service, God said that to you. You're mine. I love you and you're accepted. Others of us, maybe you were 40 years old at the end of your rope, had been down crazy back roads of life and done all kinds of things that you feel like God should be so embarrassed of where I am. God says to you in the same way, you're accepted, I love you and you're mine. I choose you to be adopted into my family. And look at what he says to us next. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. I want to point out something here, okay? On one hand, it almost sounds like this is who we are telling people who God is to us. He's my Abba Father. But that's not actually how this is expressed here. It's expressed in a very personal way. It's expressed, the word cry out. This is our understanding of how we are to cry out to God. And so it's almost as if when we approach God, sometimes we don't approach him as a loving father, and God says to us, call me daddy. Call me Abba Father. So it's not so much that we put this on a t-shirt and run around telling people this is who God is, but God is saying in a very personal way, this is how I want you to cry out to me. This is how I want you to see me. This is how I want you to approach me. Call me Abba Father. God the Father reminds me of my adoption. God the Father reminds me of my adoption. Why is that important? One, we're prone to forget. We talked about that last week. But two, as we continue to struggle through this life, on days where we fail more than we succeed, we're tempted to feel like God has renounced us. God is embarrassed to be around us. Like when your kiddo acts up in public, and you're like, oh my God, who is watching? Come with me. How quickly can we get out of this setting? Sometimes we feel like God gets embarrassed with our failures. But look at what he says next in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So in those moments of doubt or feeling like God 
I mean, surely you've renounced me after what I did today. Like, surely you don't want to call me adopted or your child anymore. The Spirit himself, the Spirit of who? God the Father bears witness to our spirit that we are still his children. You're mine. You're mine. But God, after you're mine. Now think about that, parents, right? As we raise children and we discipline, like that's true and hopefully in our own hearts. There are times where we have to pull our children aside. There are times when our children need to be disciplined and need to understand the weight of their actions, but never at the expense of, right, you have to re-earn your position in my heart, right? Never at the expense of a child wondering, well, do you still love me? So important to affirm identity in the midst of discipline, I believe, as a parent. Before, after, to say to your child, daddy doesn't like discipline. I don't like it when we need to do this, but I'm I'm willing to do it because it's good for you and for me. However, What just took place does not change who you are to me. You don't have to re-earn my love. I I love you. You're still mine, even in the midst of discipline. God himself bears witness to our spirit that we belong to him. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, what is going to happen in these next few verses is the idea of heirship and suffering are going to come together. Okay, And so here's how I believe Paul is explaining to us even our own hardships here on earth. He starts with heirship. When we hear about being heirs of God, just like in our earthly relationships, it causes us to think forward, doesn't it? Right? The idea of inheritance, the idea of what will one day be mine, what will, I will one day attain. So the idea of being an heir of God means that I am secured today, but my, but my security is not just about today. It's also about what is secured for me in the future. And so what's going to happen is Paul is going to walk into an explanation of suffering, that what is happening to me today is temporary. It's momentary compared to what I am to gain in the future. What he says. For I, this is 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, just like as we do here on earth, we see this in our children, we see it in our adult lives, we get so caught up in what's happening right now that we, we try to define life through what's happening right now. Right? Something in my life is, I perceive it to be hard. It's really tough. God must have forsaken me. See, we're defining who God is by what's happening in this moment. What Paul is doing is saying, listen, you're not defined by a momentary time stamp. You're God's today and you're not his tomorrow. You are his regardless of what happens moment by moment. And we're going to see it in this chapter in the midst of everything going chaotic Everything going wrong, you're still his. Why? Because we're adopted sons and we're heirs. So even when I experience suffering, Paul says, I don't consider the suffering of this present time to be worth comparing. It's, is it hard still? Yes. Is the pain of suffering real? Yes. Are the hardships that you're experiencing right now really hard? Yes. Paul isn't saying that they're not hard or painful. What he's saying is that in comparison to what will be ours, these are momentary light afflictions. And if anybody in the New Testament had the authority to say that about suffering, other than Jesus, I believe Paul did, and you read his resume of all the suffering he endured to get the gospel out, he is not a man who is unacquainted with grief or suffering or sorrow or loneliness or nakedness or famine or right on and on. But he says, these, as bad as they are, shipwrecked, bit by snakes, going hungry, been stoned, been chased out of town, all of these things are light and momentary afflictions compared with what I will inherit one day because I'm a son of the Most High God. If you're taking notes, God the Father helps me in my times of suffering. Helps me in my times of suffering. 
It's a beautiful expression here. We're going to see this trans- transition into verse 26. I just want to pick it up in, uh, in 22. Um, we'll just read 22 uh, through 25 together. Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. So the whole creation is in this experience of hardship and suffering. Look at the analogy he uses to explain how bad the pain here on earth can be. Ladies, you'll be able to relate to this better than us men. He says this, For the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the suffering, the hardship we experience here on earth, ladies, he uses the analogy of the pain you experienced in childbirth to try to help us understand that he's in no way minimizing the experience of today, the sufferings of today, the pain you feel of today. It's very real, right? It's in that moment, you feel like there is nothing worse on earth than what I am feeling right now, right? That's how the whole creation has been groaning. 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, even us, as we wait eagerly for what? Our adoption as sons. Now, how do we understand what is ours today versus what will be? Um, the two words that, that, that help me understand this, the word inauguration, which we understand that word every four years when we elect a president, we, he's inaugurated. But we also understand that until that person takes oath, it's not official that this person is the president. There's this period of inauguration, if you will, before there's a consummation or a made final of the position. So we have been inaugurated as Christ in our adoption as sons and daughters, right? You can't go back and undo the election just the same way you can't go back and undo your adoption. But as Paul said, right now, I'm, I'm, I see in part, I know in part, one day I shall see fully when we step from this life into eternal life. We step into the full consummation of that adoption. That's what he's saying here. We're eagerly waiting for the fullness of the process to take place. He's saying, I love what we have right now. What I have right now is sustaining me. It's moving me forward. It's enough, but I can't wait to have all of Christ. I can't wait to be in his presence fully, right, with no distractions of the flesh. No more temptation, no more evil, no more suffering, no more pain, no more childbirth. When all of it's gone, I can't wait till that moment when I see him fully and purely. We're eagerly in Christ awaiting that moment. The final consummation of our relationship. And so we know this and this helps us in our suffering. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees, right? That's not hope at all. It's not faith. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. By having faith in Christ and what he has done on our behalf and who we are in him, it then compels us to wait with patience for the final consummation of all things, the final reckoning of all things, God making all things new and right. And in the midst of right now when things are not new and right, things are old and wrong, I'm still anchored with hope. Why? Because I'm his. Because he says to me, you are mine. I love you and you are accepted. I love verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You're probably familiar with that last verse, right? All things work together. We, we read this now in the context of what Paul's talking about. In the midst of suffering and hardship and in this particular passage, being in so much turmoil that you don't even have the right words to say and the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings that, that express how we feel Those are the all things that are working out for our good. Why? Because God is our dad and our dad is the king of the universe. He is sovereign. He's in control. And he says to his children, in the midst of suffering, I've got this. Keep your eyes right here. I've got this. Trust me. Walk with me. Stay with me. See the world the way I see it. Follow me according to the wisdom that I give you. 
I've got this. And when you get to that moment where you're, I just don't even know what to say right now. The father steps in. He sees your heart and it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Speaks on our behalf. Helps us, if you're taking notes, in my time, in our time of weakness. Why? Because that's what dads do. Right, dads? I mean, there's a time to call your children to toughen up, right? Suck it up. But there is a time to acknowledge real pain and real hurt and to help out in a time of weakness, right? There's a time where Band-Aids aren't really needed. You just want a sticker. And there's another time where we need to load up and go to the hospital, right? And our loving Heavenly Father helps us in our deepest times of need. I love the way this ends. Let's read the rest of the chapter, and we're going to fill in two more blanks, and then, uh, then we'll be done with our notes. So he says, after this, all things work to, together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be, this is about Jesus, that's the he, the firstborn among many brothers. So... There is no place in Christianity to be a Christian and not be a child of the Most High God. That is what you're being conformed into. That's the, the image that you're being conformed into as a Christian. That's what it means to be in Christ. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He pulls us forward in our thinking. That's beautiful. Many, many theological debates are sparked from this passage. And while I enjoy those kinds of conversations, can I say if we get tripped up in theological debates, we miss the heart of the Father who says to us, here's what I, I need you to hear in the midst of suffering to the point where you don't even know what to say anymore. Right? In the midst of that, I can make all things work together for your good. I'm sovereign. I've got this. I'm in control. I'm your daddy, and I'm also king of the universe. And while I sustain you in this moment, I also want you to be patiently looking forward to the day, right, where all things are made new. And we embrace finally. God wants us to be thinking that way. Look at what he says next. Verse 31, we'll finish the chapter. For then, or what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me restate that. What then shall we say to these things? If God is our daddy, who can be against us? If this is our God and he's also our heavenly father, who in the world can stand against a God like this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, being Jesus, graciously give us all things? Why? Because he's a dad. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect or his children? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed in, is interceding for us. So who holds the position to condemn us? God the Father. Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery? Where are your accusers? And the men who had been there with stones began to drop their stones and walk away. And he said what? Where are your accusers? They've all walked away because they had sin in their lives. Well, neither do I condemn you. Is God in a position where he would be justified to condemn us? Yes. But as a loving father, he says, in Christ. Right? I've, I've placed all my condemnation on Christ. If you'll trust him, there is therefore no condemnation left for you as my children. So who is to condemn Look at verse 35. Who shall, and I love this, separate us from the love of Christ? 
So let's get into all the things that happen to us in our, mind, our light momentary afflictions that we just read about earlier in the chapter. We're going to read about those things. Look at what he says. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he reminds us about a prophecy, for it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, remember that Old Testament prophecy that the children of God would be looked at this way. No, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Though in the world's eyes we look like sheep without a shepherd, in God's eyes we are more than conquerors. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of my greatest fears as a dad is that something would somehow, somebody would try to separate me from my kids, from my boys. And I would fight to the death to keep that from happening. But while I'm here on earth, there's only so much I can do. And this is where our heavenly daddy steps in and says, listen, I have that same heart, but nobody gets to win. Dads, do you know that feeling? In a public setting, what if something happens here? You see it on the news. What would I do in that situation? I would fight on their behalf. But what happens when somebody takes me out and I'm no longer there to fight for my kids? And, and, and our Heavenly Father says, guess what? Nobody gets to take me out. I'm the king of the universe. Nothing will separate you from me. Well, what about hardship and suffering? Neither death nor life nor the sword can separate you from me. If you're taking notes, God the Father secures. It's an important word. He secures my identity and position as his child, he secures that, not me, and protects me from all charges, all condemnation, and any attempt to separate me from God's love, his love. First word is secures, and second word is protects. Just like any good earthly father, he does so, but he does so as one who also rules the universe, and he secures us in him. It's so in my mind, so oftentimes the theology that comes up, the, the, um, the, the security of salvation, or you once saved, always saved, comes up in a passage like this, which I wholeheartedly believe in, but I think if that's where we get tripped up, then we've lost the heart of the Father. God the Father, the King of the universe, says to his children, listen, nobody gets to win but me. It's just how it is. I rule, I rule the heavens, I rule the earth. And I have adopted you. I love that. He didn't just say, I've let you come in as the JV team. right? I've let you in in a probationary period into my kingdom. If things go well, you get to stay, depending on how you act. He didn't say that. He says that in Christ, the moment we believe, he adopts us into these blessings. The inheritance is ours, secured by the Father, not by us. Right? I mean, today, my, one of my boys can come up to me and say, you're no longer my daddy. That doesn't make it true. He might get mad at me and feel that in that moment, but it doesn't make it true. Why? Because I, I pick him up. <laughs> you're coming home with me. I strap you into the car seat, and I take you home, and I put you in the house that I provide for you as a loving father. You're still my child. You don't get to decide not to be my child anymore. Even in the midst of your rebellion, I love you, and you are mine, and you are accepted. And that's different from the wisdom of our early experience, isn't it? Um, some of you, to this day, still have not earned your father's acceptance. Some of you are even estranged from your earthly fathers because you never measured up or never met their expectations. And if you're not careful, you'll carry that into your relationship with God and you'll see him that way. And you'll still be sitting here trying to earn his favor. I hope he lets me in. When we, when, we, when we buy into that lie, God the Father steps in and says, you haven't believed the gospel. Do not spit on the work my son did on the cross. He did that for you to set you free from condemnation that you might be adopted in as my children. And nobody gets to mess with that. 
You're more than conquerors. And he says to us, his children, I've got this. I've got this. All right. Let's shift to a time of reflection now. If you're taking notes, you'll see these questions at the bottom of your uh, Connect Guy notes. And um, I put these in here on purpose. I think if we're not careful, we'll become a people who get really familiar with coming to Bible teaching on Sunday and walking back into the wisdom world on Monday and completely forget what we've heard. I, I know I am. Okay, I don't want to put that on you, but I know I am. So that's what this is for. If God is stirring in your heart right now, speaking to you and challenging you, these questions are there to help prompt you to, to maybe write some things down. That's why the backside says uh, notes for reflection for you. You can write those things down. Just some things I want us to think of as we get ready to pray together and the worship team comes back up. How has your experience with your earthly father affected the way you see God as your heavenly father? We've talked about some examples today. Are you able to see God as a loving father who leads you towards what is right or a ruling dictator who demands obedience? It's different. Do you believe that God's desire is to lead you away from what harms you and towards what is good for you? Do you believe that God is there to help you when you experience suffering and weakness? Verse five, do you, or not verse five, question five, do you see God as a valiant warrior who fights on your behalf to protect you and secure your identity as his child? That's what the word conqueror means. He's a valiant warrior who fights on behalf of his children. Last one is this, and I would say very important question. If you don't have a relationship with God that, is, that we just read described in Romans eight, I'm wondering today if you would approach God Approach him in prayer in your own way, with your own words. Come to him as a loving father. Receive the gift of forgiveness from your sins that he's offering you. He's offering that right now to you. Come receive it. To receive his leadership in your life as he leads you towards what is good. Will you make that step today? And ultimately, will you embrace God as a loving father who fights on your behalf? I'm gonna pray for us, and as I do, our prayer partners are gonna come down, our worship team's gonna come up, and um, as always, our prayer partners are here to pray for you about how God is working and stirring in your, in your hearts today. If God has spoken something to you and you just wanna share it with somebody, you wanna ask for somebody to pray over something, that's what they're here for. We'll have prayer partners at the front and at the back. Our prayer rooms will be open. Obviously, the front is always open if you'd like to come kneel and pray. Let's respond now to the heart of our loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God who fights on our behalf. And even though we oftentimes feel like sheep without a shepherd in the midst of suffering, God, you remind us today that you are a loving, conquering father. Thank you, God, for conquering sin and death. Thank you for establishing this beautiful love relationship between yourself and us. Thank you for being our daddy. Help us today. God, help us to respond to this beautiful, beautiful promise that you've made to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.